From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, July 16th. I'm Clark Boyd. Egyptians are flooding their new president with petitions. We'll hear what they want. And later, a soldier's long-lost letters from the Vietnam War finally reach home. The first was to his mother, and in it he says, If Dad calls, tell him I got too close to being dead, but I'm okay. I was real lucky. Plus, an Olympian from Eritrea gets ready for London 2012. You know, when I win a race, I thank God for giving me the opportunities, for giving me the talent that I have. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. And by WGBH, producer of Market Warriors. Don't miss the series premiere of Market Warriors, tonight at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Clark Boyd. This is The World. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton got right in the middle of Egypt's power struggle over the weekend. During her stay in the country, she met both the new Islamist president, Mohamed Morsi, and Field Marshal Tantawi, the head of Egypt's ruling military council. And she urged the military to hand over power to civilian control. But just hours later, Tantawi was quoted as saying that the army would prevent a, quote, certain group from taking over the country. That scene is a reference to the Muslim Brotherhood, of which Morsi is a former leader. Despite the standoff with the generals, Egypt's new president has promised to accomplish a lot in his first 100 days. And some Egyptians have very high expectations, as the world's Matthew Bell reports from Cairo. Here's something that would not have happened when Hosni Mubarak was president of Egypt. Demonstrators gather at the gate of Qasr al-Itahdiya, one of the presidential palaces on the outskirts of Cairo. In Mubarak's time, average Egyptians could be stopped by security just for walking by this place. A protest would not have been tolerated. But on a recent summer evening, hundreds of riot police are lined up outside the palace, and they stand by doing nothing as protesters send a message to their new president. Activist Mohammed Talat says President Morsi was brought to power by the revolution and he has an obligation to free thousands of protesters still in military custody. This should be Morsi's top priority, Talat says. He hopes the president is being honest when he says he's listening to the concerns of the people. Another thing that never would have happened under Mubarak's rule is the scene here at the Abdin Palace in downtown Cairo. It's a government office, and outside of one of the entrances, there are a few dozen people gathered to submit personal petitions to President Morsi himself. Mahatin Abdelmenem Ibrahim is from the Nile Delta, a few hours' drive from Cairo. She reads to me from a handwritten plea to President Morsi that she's about to deliver to officials inside the palace. Her 34-year-old son got married almost a year ago, but he couldn't afford rent and lost his apartment. Now he's living at his parents' home, and he's desperate. He's even threatened to kill himself out of shame, she says. Please, can the president help her son and daughter-in-law find a place to live. Do you think President Morsi will help you? Sure, sure. 
sure, inshallah. Walid Maher is a young father. He's come to the palace with his pregnant wife and their disabled three-year-old girl. He says he makes about $3 a day selling packets of tissues on the street in Cairo, but his daughter's medical bills add up to about $30 a week. The toddler can't talk or walk, he says, and she needs surgery that's going to cost more than $30,000. Maher says he's here to petition the president for a better job or at least some housing assistance just to get by. Morsi is said to be locked in a power struggle with the powerful Egyptian military, but listening to people's stories here offers a close-up view at the president's biggest challenge, and that's meeting the daily needs of millions of people living at the bottom of Egypt's crippled economy. Morsi's government opened up two complaints offices for the public. Within five days, it received 10,000 petitions. They're coming from Egyptians like 60-year-old Mohammed Abouzid Shehoun. Shehoun says he's nearly blind and can't work anymore, so he's supporting his wife and four kids on a pension of about a dollar a day. He says he went to local officials, and they told him to go ask the revolution for help. Now he's here to petition the new president. It was us, the poor people, he says, who made the revolution happen. If President Morsi doesn't help us, we will have another revolution and we'll get rid of him too. Morsi is staking his success on electoral politics. The question is, has he set himself up for failure by raising impossibly high expectations? Mohammed El-Baltegi is a member of parliament and a senior official with the Muslim Brotherhood's Freedom and Justice Party. No one can solve everyone's problems, Baltegi says, but President Morsi takes these petitions seriously. When I bring up the pensioner's comment about launching another revolution against Mohamed Morsi, Baltegi says this isn't the time or place to be making demands of the new government. People will see the president is serious, he says, when he starts to deliver on his promises. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Cairo. Matthew took pictures of the petitioners outside the president's palace in Cairo. You can see a slideshow at theworld.org. As we mentioned earlier, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was just in Egypt. She met with President Mohamed Morsi over the weekend. Today, Secretary Clinton was in Israel, but Egypt was still on the agenda there. Israeli leaders have looked on with concern at the rise of Islamists like President Morsi. Michael Hanna is a fellow at the Century Foundation in New York. He says the Obama administration is engaging Morsi simply because it has to. This is the first time we've seen this level of contact between a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, who's now the president of Egypt, and a U.S. secretary of state. That being said, while it does reflect major shifts that have happened in the region, this is the reality that the United States now deals with. I think there's simply no other alternative. This is the president of a longtime U.S. strategic ally, uh, and if there is to be a future for this bilateral relationship, one that has figured prominently in regional security for the United States, uh, then the United States now has the task of reconstructing political ties and a new relationship and a new foundation for this relationship going forward. Now, Egypt has told Hillary Clinton that it will meet its treaty obligations with Israel. What's the benefit for Egypt in doing so? The Muslim Brotherhood understand that abrupt shifts, changes in, in these international frameworks would damage Egypt's ability to cooperate with, with other actors. And, and at this juncture, when there is a need for foreign direct investment, 
and, and security cooperation with other actors, those aren't risks that any Egyptian leader would be willing to take. Do you think that Israel can trust that Egypt will do what it says? Well, I think it's important to recognize that, that this new president, Mohamed Morsi, is not in control fully of uh, all executive functions, and particularly when it comes to sensitive regional files that have been run by the intelligence services and the military even prior to the regime being toppled. It's not as if he now has carte blanche to refashion these arrangements and to upend the nature of security intelligence cooperation. And so the role of the military, for better or for worse, is a fact of life. And that's a reality that will govern and limit the ability of Mohamed Morsi to shift the direction of Egyptian foreign policy in the near future. So how do you think the new Egyptian president, uh, Mohamed Morsi, reflects anti-Israeli opinion there in Egypt? Well, frankly, anti-Israeli opinion is very common. Uh, Palestine and the question of Palestine, the occupation, these things are vital issues for Egyptians and many in the Arab world. Uh, and I think the big shift now is that Egyptian foreign policy cannot simply ignore popular opinion as it could under the Mubarak regime. Now that has to figure into how the country's foreign policy is made. When you are democratizing and creating a space for representational politics, popular opinion matters in a way that it didn't used to prior. You were talking about the new government in Egypt and how Mohamed Morsi doesn't have you know, complete control over it. Does that mean that there's uncertainty over the way it, it will now react to events? And is that uncertainty likely to make Israel more restrained or conciliatory? I would hope that Israeli leaders are cognizant of the fact that they are operating in a new regional environment. If they do prioritize the strategic importance of the Camp David Accords, uh, then they are going to have to themselves approach bilateral ties between Egypt and Israel in a different way. This is all a work in progress. I will say that the, the existing security ties between the military and the intelligence services in Egypt uh, remain, uh, and there is still bilateral contact and cooperation on that front. So it's not as if uh, Israel is operating in a completely new environment, uh, but clearly now they have to contend with politics in a way that they never had to in the past. Michael Hanna is a fellow at the Century Foundation, whose focus includes U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. He joined us from New York. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Okay, so you thought it was hot where you were today? Well, spare a thought for the poor people in Athens, Greece. As if they didn't already have a lot to worry about, today residents of the Greek capital had to contend with temperatures in the neighborhood of 108 degrees Fahrenheit. Extreme heat waves aside, though, sunny warm weather should be good news for a country where one in five people make their living, directly or indirectly, from tourism. When tourism goes okay, then the whole economy goes okay. If tourism goes bad, then the whole economy goes bad. That's George Dracopoulos. He's the director general of a nonprofit group that lobbies on behalf of Greek tourism operators. I sat down with Dracopoulos the last time I was in Athens on a reporting trip just after last month's elections. He told me that the negative press about Greece's financial crisis was definitely keeping some Western European tourists away, Germans in particular. In fact, Dracopoulos told me at the time that bookings from Germany to Greece were down more than 20%, and that, he told me, spells trouble. Less people traveling, less people visiting the country, less people working for these to serve them. So we risk a drop there in the employment levels. Dracopoulos also says that many parts of the country are seeing a marked drop in internal tourism. In other words, Greeks themselves aren't traveling, and if they are, they're not spending any money. Interestingly, though, all is not lost for the Greek tourism industry, thanks to a little help from the Russians. We have experienced an increase from the Russian market, 63%, 63. Then we are pretty confident that we're going to pass the limit of 1 million Russians 
in Greece this year. Andrakopoulos told me each of those Russians spends an average of $400 more than a German. He said his group is lobbying the new Greek government to ease tourist visa restrictions for those coming from the East, and not just Russians. China and India, he said, both represent major markets for Greece. But Drakopoulos says the real trick is getting would-be tourists to ignore all the bad news they're hearing about the situation in Greece. The weather is nice, the climate is nice, the people are the same, the beaches are the same, Acropolis is the same, prices are slightly cheaper than in other years. So the real tourist stuff has not been affected. But tourism is not an independent thing, it's a part of life. So in, in the real life you need stability, you need safety while traveling. You don't need any hassle. I mean, the only problem a tourist must have is where shall I go for lunch, where shall I go for dinner, which beach I will go today, which museum I will visit. This would be the daily routine of the tourist, not, oh, the center will be closed. No, 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 no. no. So it's by far the most important thing is to stabilize the whole situation here. Since the Greek elections and the formation of a government, international focus on the euro crisis has shifted more towards Spain. That seems to be good news for Greek tourism. Today, an Athens newspaper reported that German tour bookings are creeping up again. But it might be too late. I'm afraid we don't have enough time to cover the loss. But for this year, for this year. So Germany will end up, this market, with a bit of loss at the end of the year. But still, to minimize the loss is always a better thing than maximizing the loss. And then there's that extreme weather we mentioned earlier. It was so hot in Athens today that the Acropolis a must-see for tourists, was shut down in mid-afternoon. As one Athenian on Twitter said, apparently it's so hot that even marble will melt. I'm not sure, though, that's going to work as a marketing slogan. Coming up, an Olympic athlete from Kosovo goes to London, but she'll be representing another country. That's on PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Clark Boyd. This is The World. When the Olympics get underway in London at the end of next week, my Linda Kelmendi will be there. Kalmendi is a 12-year-old judo fighter from Kosovo. She'll be the first Olympian from Kosovo since the country declared independence in 2008. But Kalmendi won't be representing Kosovo because she can't. Nate Tabak has more from the western Kosovo city of Peja. Even while grappling with her sparring partner, Mylinda Kalmendi cracks a hint of a smile. But her blows are relentless. Hitting the mat is 19-year-old Nora Jakova, who's been training with Kelmendi for years. She might look uh, calm, but she's very aggressive in, in the competition, and she's very good. So I don't think the, the opponents with, will like to fight with her. Kelmendi is one of the best judo fighters in the world. She's ranked number seven in her under-115-pound weight class. I catch up with Kelmendi after practice. Gone is her blue judogi uniform, replaced by a t-shirt and shorts. She relaxes on a terrace of the training center in her hometown of Pea. She started here when she was eight. When I started judo, I saw one other side of me. Because normally I am really quiet and everybody, they say, how is this possible? You are so, so feminine, you know, <laughs> so quiet. But in judo, I am 
you know, I'm just myself. Kalmendi plans to represent something much bigger than herself in London later this month. She'll be the first Kosovar Olympian since her country declared independence in 2008. Everybody from Kosovo will watch me in Olympics, so it's a big responsibility, but I'm also happy for this. But Kalmendi won't be there for Kosovo. She's representing neighboring Albania. We wanted so much to go for Kosovo because just because Kosovo it's a, it's a new country. The International Olympic Committee doesn't recognize Kosovo because it isn't a UN member state. In May, the IOC rejected Kalmendi's request to compete as an independent athlete. It said Kalmendi must represent Albania because she's also a citizen there. Kalmendi is an ethnic Albanian, and she became an Albanian citizen in order to compete in more matches. But Kosovo is home. We are originally from Kosovo. We live in Kosovo. Dritan Kuka has been Kalmendi's coach from the start. In the end, they decide not very good solution for us, but I hope this will be extra motivation for us to achieve a good result in London. Kalmendi's Olympic conundrum is all too familiar for her coach. He had hoped to qualify as a judo fighter for Yugoslavia in the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona. But in the early 90s, thousands of Kosovo Albanians were forced from their jobs under the policies of Slobodan Milosevic, and Kuka was kicked off the Yugoslav Olympic team. Yugoslavia was ultimately banned from the Olympics due to UN sanctions over the war in Bosnia. Athletes from the former Yugoslavia were allowed to compete independently, but for Kuka, it was too late. In that case, I lose my Olympics and I lose my career. And I think after 20 years, Mylinda, she will continue there where, when I stop. And Mylinda Kalmendi has high ambitions. I mean, gold, it's really big word, but... Yeah, I'm going there for, for a medal. Kalmendi says she hopes that one day her story will just be about her prowess as a fighter, not the political status of her country. I just want to be from Kosovo. I don't want more this question when I go in competition. What's this? Sometimes you are Albania, sometimes you are in Kosovo. And then all the time you have to explain the same thing. This is really not good. <laughs> Still, Kalmendi is proud as a Kosovo Albanian to represent Albania, the country. And if she does win a medal, it would be Albania's first since the country began participating in the Olympics 40 years ago. For the world, I'm Nate Tabak, Pea, Kosovo. You can see Mylinda Kalmendi practicing her judo skills in the gym. We have a slideshow at theworld.org. Our next story is also about an Olympian who's representing a nation that is not his native land. Meb Kaflesgi runs marathons. He's from Eritrea, but will be representing the U.S. in London. At 37, he's now the oldest man to win the U.S. marathon trials. Kaflesgi has been to the Olympics twice before. He won a silver medal at the 2004 Athens Olympics. In London, he's hoping to grab gold for the U.S. Kaflesgi recently told the BBC about his journey from Eritrean child to American Olympian. I was born in Eritrea, and during my birth, there was a big uh, war for independence that lasted for 31 years. My dad had to walk 225 miles to save his life to Sudan, and then came to the United States on October 21st, 1987, 25 years ago. Didn't speak English. We didn't have money. Uh, they gave us used chairs, used beds, tables, used forks, used plates, and whatever that comes to make it more like home, but uh, we had to work very hard. And that's what my parents told us. The driving force was better opportunity and freedom to live. First time I ever ran 
or somebody noticed was in seventh grade PE teacher. I just, the PE teacher said, if you run hard, I'll give you A or B. If you don't, I'm going to get DRF. Well, I took off. I want to get that A, and I ran 520 before that. I didn't even think it was a sport. Running didn't mean anything. I mean, you run because the soldiers are coming to get you, or you can hide and things like that. But before that, I had no idea it was fitness. One more minute. Earlier today, I did a uh, ice bath. You know, I go in the creek, uh, melted snow that is water going through the, the town, and it's very cold. Why I do it is uh, to keep the inflammation down. You, you know, I train hard, and uh, you make you recover faster. The biggest decision I have to make after college was whether to run for Eritrea or U.S., but bear in mind, I've been in the United States in 1987, and I don't remember much of Eritrea, and I know that I was born there, but other than that, it's just those moments, moments, memories from sixth grade on to high school to college. Everything was what I'd done in the U.S., so that's why I decided to go for the United States. And some of my family members said, yeah, I'll go for the U.S., and others really want me to hold on to my roots, but at the same token, I have to make a decision that is comfortable for me and Going to that opening ceremony in, uh, in Sydney was huge because I dreamed of that and I want to make it happen and I know I made the right decision. Come on, girls. Give me one ma apple mango. Sometimes uh, when I look at myself, I have to pinch myself. Why did God select me to be where I am? So I have to look back and say, you know what? I appreciate it. I don't take things for granted. Yeah. You can eat your neck? Yeah. I have kids that are born here that they do think things for granted, but I have to tell them, hey, Listen, does not everybody have food in their plates? You know, when I win a race, I thank God for giving me the opportunities, for giving me the talent that I have. I think about family. <laughs> I think about where I came from to begin with. I think about where I'm going to go, and I think about the people in the United States uh, who helped me be who I am. Meb Kaflesgi speaking to the BBC from his home in Mammoth Lakes, California. He'll be representing the U.S. in the marathon at the London Olympics this summer. This is PRI. I'm Clark Boyd. Ahead, a soldier's letter from the Vietnam War finally comes home. Thank you for your sweet card. It made my miserable day a much better one. But I don't think I will ever forget the bloody fight we're having. Felt bullets going past. Never been so scared in my life. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. I'm Clark Boyd, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Stephen Flaherty was a talented athlete. He dreamed of becoming a professional baseball player. He even went to college on a baseball scholarship. One of his teammates on uh, the baseball team said that he remembered being a freshman starting out for the team, and Steve was showing him the ropes and how he hard he needed to practice and go that extra mile. And after he explained all that, he said, and the things that Steve taught me on that baseball field were not just for baseball, but they were life lessons. And that's the kind of guy Steve was. 
That's Martha Gibbons, Stephen Flaherty's sister-in-law. The young player's Major League dreams ended, though, in 1967. That's when Flaherty enlisted in the U.S. Army. A year later, he was a sergeant in the 101st Airborne Division, serving in Vietnam. Flaherty died in combat there on March 25, 1969. He was 22 years old. Like many young soldiers, Flaherty wrote letters to family and friends back home. When he died, he had four unsent letters with him. Two were for his mother, one was to a neighbor, and one was to a friend. Those letters were found on his body and used as propaganda by the North Vietnamese government. They were read aloud on Radio Hanoi in an effort to lower the morale of American soldiers. Then last year, a retired POW MIA expert noticed a mention of unsent letters in a Vietnamese online magazine. He set out to get them delivered. Last month, the letters were handed to Defense Secretary Leon Panetta during his visit to Vietnam. And on Saturday, 43 years after they were written, the letters finally got to Sergeant Flaherty's family in South Carolina. Martha Gibbons was among the family members there. We have not yet opened the letters. Uh, Saturday was just too emotional for us, and so we have decided to wait until our emotions calm down a little bit before we open them. And the first time we can get together as a family would be is Wednesday evening, so that's our plan. I understand, though, that you do have excerpts from the letters. Yes, uh, we do. Is there an, an excerpt or two that, that you could or would like to read to us? Yes, I could do that. I have an excerpt from three letters that I would share with you. The first was to his mother, and in it he says, If Dad calls, tell him I got too close to being dead, but I'm okay. I was real lucky. And then later he says, I'm ready for my R&R. Don't know yet where I'm going and don't care, just as long as I get the much-needed rest that I need. We'll let you know where. I'll write again soon. He wrote, Our platoon leader was killed. And I was temporary leader until our replacement. We re- got our replacement. Nothing seems to go well for us, but we'll take that ridge hill. Thank you for your sweet card. It made my miserable day a much better one. But I don't think I will ever forget the bloody fight we're having. Felt bullets going past. Never been so scared in my life. This isn't the typical story of a young American wanting to serve his nation. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about his history? Oh, yes. Steve was born in Oiso, Japan. When he was like about two or three, his mother had to take him to Elizabeth Saunders' home, which was a Japanese orphanage for Japanese-American children, because at that time in history, Japanese-American children were not accepted. They were kind of persecuted, so she had no choice but to give him up for his safety and for her to be able to get a job and make a living. Uh, Steve's brother to whom I was married, was stationed in Oiso when he was in the, the Army. And on his free time, he found out about the Elizabeth Saunders home. And he went down and started working with these young kids and had a church here in Columbia, send him a lot of baseball equipment over there. He taught these kids to play baseball. When he got ready to come home, he wanted to bring one of these children with him. He was single at the time and couldn't do it. So he talked his parents into adopting one. And Steve was the one that was adopted. So he came from a very meager background. And I think that is why Steve was so eager to help everybody. And I think that's why ultimately he gave up the opportunity to be a professional baseball player, to serve the country that had given him a home and given him so much of an opportunity. Wow, that's an amazing tale. I, I want to bring in uh, Robert DeStott at this point. Uh, Robert uh, joins us from his home in Temecula, California. And Robert, 
I understand that you're responsible for stumbling upon these letters, that uh, the fact that they even exist. Tell me a little bit about how you found out about them. I had received a question from uh, a person who's writing about some of our former prisoners of war. And I was looking through Vietnamese websites looking for information to answer his question when I stumbled on this series of articles that described Sergeant Flaherty's letters. I realized immediately that this would be something of interest to to veterans of his unit and to his family if we could find them. So how did you find Martha Gibbons and the Flaherty family then after you learned about the letters? I sent a letter to uh, Richland County Sheriff, explained the, uh, the purpose of my search and asked if he might help. And he responded immediately that he'd be honored to help. And uh, he assigned uh, one of his captains, Captain uh, Howard Hughes, to help out. And uh, uh, Miss Gibbons can uh, tell you better than I uh, how he uh, made that connection. And then, of course, Miss Gibbons uh, was able to put me in touch with other family members. Martha Gibbons, if you'd want to pick up the story there, I'd, I'd love to hear it. Oh, yes. The very first day I got that call from uh, Captain Hughes, I didn't have my glasses on. I was out in the yard working, and I answered the phone, and he said, is this Martha Gibbons? And I said, yes, it is. And he said, this is Captain Howard Hughes from the Richland County Sheriff's Department. Of course, that scares you to death. And he said, did you know Sergeant Steve Flaherty? And I said, yes, I did. And so then he tells me that this Mr. DeStott in California wants my phone number and how to get in touch with me. And 43 years after the fact, you know, you're just a little bit skeptical about what's going on. Who is this? What's all this about? So I immediately went inside, got my glasses put on, and saw that the phone call had come from a South Carolina state number. So then I gave Captain Hughes my information. He gave it to Mr. DeStott. Mr. DeStott got in touch with me, and it went from there. Martha, I do want to ask about, in general, the feeling, the the importance you place on getting these letters back and getting them returned uh, to your family. I mean, how how do you feel about that? Well, as his uncle said when he received them on Saturday, the Army having determined him to be the next of kin, he was the one that actually they handed them to, he said it's just like having Steve back. It really was. Saturday was a day of total mixed emotions. It was very reminiscent of his funeral because lots of his extended family, family was there. Uh, His class was having a reunion uh, Saturday evening. A lot of his classmates came. There were a lot of Vietnam veterans there. Everybody expressing their, their sympathy, remembrances. It was just very emotional, very emotional, but just wonderful to have these letters back in the possession of the family. Martha Gibbons and Robert DeStott, thank you both for sharing your stories with us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you. You can see pictures of Sergeant Stephen Flaherty and read the excerpts from his recovered letters at theworld.org. In China, explosive economic growth is slowing, but the government says it wants to slow growth so it can focus on restructuring the economy from the old export model to one led by domestic consumption and fueled by innovation. But fueling innovation is a tricky thing, as one startup company in Shanghai is learning. The world's Mary Kay Magstead spoke with the founder, a 42-year-old entrepreneur from Korea. Yu Girl Yoon was fast out of the blocks when he got out of graduate school at Stanford in 1995. He worked a year for Tandy and then for a startup that went bust, 
Then, he created the shopping comparison website MySimon.com and sold it two years later for $700 million. Mostly, it was just very lucky. It's like, you know, right time in the right place. It was just before the U.S. dot-com bubble popped. Yun started a few more companies, tried his luck in Japan, and is now in Shanghai. He's convinced that China is the future. This is going to be the country, I mean, in my industry, is bigger than U.S. I'm talking about in terms of the dollar amount. It's going to be bigger than the sum of the money that's spent by you know, all of the U.S. people in two years, by all measures. Yun's startup is called B5M, in Chinese, Mai or Help Me Buy. B5M's office is pretty standard. White walls, cubicles, employees focused on their computers. It's the work culture here that's different, says Wang Min. He's a 32-year-old former math teacher who's worked at other high-tech companies in China. Wang says his boss here lets the employees try new things. We can show him what we can do, and he always gives us all those chances. Even if it's a wrong direction, you can try. So our culture is a try. Which is pretty rare in China, he says, even in the high-tech field. Yun says creating the right work environment is something he learned in Silicon Valley after learning something even more basic when he left Korean schools for Stanford. I was, you know, raised in a very competitive environment. I had to study, you know, 12, 13 hours a day, every day. You know, not a lot of this innovation. It's more of, a, you know, memorizing and understanding, being able to solve the problems that are in the text. And then I went to Stanford, and then it's a very culture shock. He says the exams at Stanford didn't just test what you knew, but how you applied it to new situations. For him, it was the beginning of a new way of thinking. The data engineering manager here, Jing Guangfang, says Chinese people could use a little more of that in their education. Frankly speaking, the Chinese education system is not as good as Western countries like the U.S. He switches to Chinese to say people here need to learn critical, creative thinking from other places. He went to India. And for a 20-something-year-old from a village in central China, it was an eye-opener. He says the Indians he worked with had a really open global perspective, and it taught him to switch on that perspective, to look at China more critically, and ask how should China act in the world, how should China be. He says it made him realize that to foster innovation, it helps to have a freer flow of ideas and information. South Korea found that to be the case when it shifted from authoritarian rule and censorship to a more open democracy in the 1980s. Yo Girl Yoon was a teenager there when the transformation happened. I mean, it made a major, major impact. It's basically, you know, everybody can speak up, and that's a transparency. Because now everybody can see what's better and what's, what's good, right? What's more efficient. Yun says he's trying to help China make progress, but sometimes it's hard going in unexpected ways. I realized that, you know, even though you have a good solution, the big companies are not willing to create a win-win. They want to have a win-lose. He says big Silicon Valley companies look to cooperate with promising startups in ways that can benefit each for a win-win. But Chinese companies seek to crush the competition. I win, you lose. He says many Chinese companies also lack respect for intellectual property rights. They don't see the point of leasing someone else's software. Yun says even underwear companies prefer to hire their own engineers to come up with their own search engines, even if it's just an expensive duplication of effort. 
They do not trust other companies' product. They're worried about it because they're relying on someone else. That's why, you know, there's no win-win. Win-win, it requires a synergistic, dependent sort of a relationship. That's what win-win is all about. I help you, you help me. But because of the lack of the trust, right, that creates the win-lose. Still, Yoon is relentlessly optimistic, or at least tenacious. He admires the drive and the work ethic here. He still thinks China's the place to be to make money in his field. He believes China will eventually become innovative itself because, he says, once Chinese companies have caught up by copying what's already out there, there is no other choice. Then will come the test of how much real innovation can come out of a society that lacks trust, intellectual property protection, and a free flow of information and ideas. For now, the game remains for the innovative to come in and stay just far enough ahead of those ready to copy, pirate, or crush them. Even with the slowing economy, the brave and the ambitious still find it a game worth playing. For The World, I'm Mary Kay Magstad, Shanghai. Think fast. Can you name all seven emirates that make up the United Arab Emirates? Just kidding. We're only looking for one of the seven for today's geo-quiz. This emirate has a long shoreline along the Gulf of Oman. The beaches there attract tourists who like to jet ski and windsurf. For hikers, this emirate also offers plenty of mountainous terrain. In fact, the steep terrain makes building infrastructure there a challenge. The latest example involves a major new oil pipeline that opened just this weekend. More than a million barrels a day can flow through it. When the crude reaches the offshore terminal, it's loaded onto supertankers for the journey across the Indian Ocean to Asia. We'll hear more about this new pipeline when we come back with the answer in just a bit. PRI. I'm Clark Boyd. This is The World. A new oil pipeline is up and running in the Middle East. This one is strategically important because it bypasses the Strait of Hormuz. That's the narrow shipping channel at the eastern end of the Persian Gulf. Iran has repeatedly threatened to block it in response to Western pressure over its nuclear program. Anthony DePaola is Bloomberg's Middle East energy correspondent. He was there for the opening of the new pipeline, which originates in the oil fields of Abu Dhabi. Yes, that's right. I was uh, at the inauguration yesterday. It was in the Emirate of Fujairah, which is one of the seven uh, sheikdoms that make up the UAE. Uh, The importance of the pipeline is that it runs from, as you mentioned, the oil fields of Abu Dhabi to uh, Fujairah, which is outside of the Strait of Hormuz. So this pipeline runs to that point, and and that's where ships can come and load up with crude oil uh, to deliver it to to the customers of Abu Dhabi and in Asia mainly. Yesterday we were at the site. It's uh, nestled in the hills, uh, the mountains really, uh, of Fujairah, uh, between the the mountains and the water. There's uh, eight storage tanks there that each of them hold one million barrels of oil. The oil gets stored there until it can be offloaded uh, onto tankers at some uh, offshore buoys off the coast of the UAE. So we should point out that Fujairah on the Gulf of Oman is the answer to our geography quiz today. Anthony, I'm curious about the amount of oil that this pipeline 
will be able to handle? The pipeline has a, a maximum capacity of uh, 1.5 million barrels a day. That's uh, less than a tenth of, of what usually goes through the strait. So when we're talking about a possible incident in the strait closure, this wouldn't really uh, solve the problems for, for world supply. It would be an important outlet for Abu Dhabi to get some of its oil to markets. How much did the pipeline cost to build? It was over $4 billion. So is there a sense that it's going to be worth the money, considering the strait, it, it, it doesn't seem to be able to move that much oil? Well, this is a strategic investment. Uh, so if there is ever an event in the strait, it will be worth its money because it will give that added uh, security. It will allow Abu Dhabi and the other Gulf countries to at least get some oil to market. Uh, so it may kind of keep the, uh, the wheels turning uh, of the global economy for a little bit. Now, military experts uh, will say that you know, while Iran might be able to close or disrupt traffic in the strait, uh, it would be a very temporary closure. So the main impact might be uh, rather on, on oil prices. And if that's the case, uh, it might indicate to the other Persian Gulf countries that it would behoove them to agree to a, a joint pipeline or a multinational pipeline that would give diverse export routes uh, out of the Persian Gulf. I've never been to an inauguration of an oil pipeline before. Exactly what goes on <laughs> in one of these uh, pipeline inaugurations? Basically, they gave a couple speeches, and then the energy minister went over to you know, touch a button that was on a, uh, a pedestal. You know, really, no one could see what he did because uh, you know, all, the, all the people that were there, all the dignitaries kind of stood up and walked over with him to push this button, which was not on the stage. So you know, they had a guy with a laser pointer pointing to one spot on the screen. So it looked like you were going to kind of see oil moving through the pipeline on this schematic of the, the offshore buoys, which did show a ship. Right. Middle East energy correspondent for Bloomberg speaking to us about the Abu Dhabi crude oil pipeline which is running from Abu Dhabi to the city of Fujairah, which is the answer to today's Geography Quiz. Anthony, thanks again. My pleasure. Finally today, we meet a family of musicians who sing Sufi music as a form of worship. Sufism is a mystical sect of Islam. The music, known as Kavali, originated in Persia and fused with Indian musical styles in the 13th century. From Delhi, India, Sonia Narang reports on how the Nizami family is keeping the tradition going. Throngs of visitors and pilgrims gather for prayers in the marble courtyard of the shrine of Hazrat Nizamuddin, a Sufi saint. But few realize that an extended family of musicians called the Nizami Bandhu live right inside the grounds of the seven-century-old sacred shrine. That's 48-year-old Chan Nizami. He's the leader of the Kavali musicians. The word Kavali comes from the Arabic word kal, meaning poems that are full of praises to God. Nizami says tears often come to his eyes as he sings. We get a strong feeling in our heart and soul. We sing the name of God and Sufi saints, and by singing their name, we feel at peace. Every week on Thursday evenings, the Nizamuddin Shrine is packed with people of all religions. They sit cross-legged on the floor, knee to knee, and listen to Kavali music for hours into the night. The 12 members of the Nizami Bandhu, all men, 
sit in two rows facing the tomb of the saint, Hazrat Nizamuddin. The lead singers play the harmonium, a hand-pumped keyboard. The others clap their hands or beat traditional drums. There's a big difference between performing on the stage and performing inside a sacred shrine. When your guru or saint is in front of you and you're singing face-to-face with God, it's an entirely different atmosphere. Nizami's nephew, 28-year-old Sorab Nizami, grew up in the midst of the spiritual shrine listening to the music. Our uncle, father, and grandfather used to take us to see these Kavali music programs. When they would rehearse, we would also sit with them. We enjoy following in their footsteps and learning from them. Now, his brother Shadab brings his five-year-old son to rehearsals. This Kavali music is a family legacy that's within our blood. We'd like to carry forward and continue this tradition of Kavali for many generations by teaching our children. In the busy Muslim neighborhood around the shrine, passers-by can often hear the group CDs playing in street stalls. But it was the family's cameo appearance in the recent Bollywood film Rockstar, filmed at the Nizamuddin Shrine, that's bringing them greater fame in Delhi. Today, the Nizami Bandhu are performing inside a school auditorium in Delhi. 11th grader Shreya Sharma says the Kavali music speaks directly to her. It's what makes it special, is the way it appeals to the masses, the way it is energizing, and the way it is compelling. It's like an escalator to heaven. The music appeals to people from different traditions, including Muslims and Hindus. So Rab Nizami says the family also wants to continue reaching out to audiences of all ages. This is a gift from God, so that's why we want to continue this. We don't want to lose this treasure. The family is bringing the music to Western audiences. They're performing in California this fall. For the world, I'm Sonia Narang, Delhi. Video of the Harmonium in Action and the Nizami family performing at the famous Sufi Shrine in Delhi. That's all at theworld.org. And that's our program today. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Clark Boyd. Thanks for being with us. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, the Rita Allen Foundation, and by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. PRI Public Radio International.